Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I get it, old man. You built a lot of doors, okay? Jason really uh, going for the the deep reference here to this film oh, that yeah. I'm sure all of our listeners will understand. I think but. the old man was my favorite character. He was he was interesting to watch, definitely. Um, this season of Awesome Movie Year is about the films of 1987, and we are here at our foreign film pick, which I hope some people have seen. I think I think people have. I don't think I don't think a lot of people have seen it. And you're like, oh, you're really uh, giving an obscure reference. I'm like, dude, I think we're in obscure territory going into this already. We are, but I mean, if you are a follower of world cinema, you're certainly familiar with Abbas Karastami, the Iranian filmmaker, and we're talking about his film, Where is the Friend's House, which is his breakthrough film internationally. It is the first film in what is called his Coker trilogy, and it is highly acclaimed. Jason, didn't you say, I missed this looking it up, but is it it's somewhere on the Sight and Sound? Uh, yes, poll? your beloved Sight and Sound list. He's got three movies on there. This one, Taste of Cherry, and of course, another one. No, <laughs> Close Up. It's Close Up. It's the third yeah. one. So, And I watched all three in preparation for this podcast. That's great. Yeah. Uh, the, so, Josh, I mean, explain the Coker trilogy so people, you know, maybe there are some sports fans who think it's about... Uh, former Miami football coach, Larry Coker. It's not, Josh. It's about- oh, well, that was what I was going to say it was. So uh, <laughs> Josh know, is our sports guy. So. Yeah. So Coker is the name of this uh, like village, I guess you could say, in rural Iran where this film takes place and two other films as well. And it's not a, like I, I haven't seen the other two films in that in this trilogy, but it's not like a formal trilogy per se, but it's all kind of dealing with reflections on the other films. Uh, the other movies in this trilogy are Life and Nothing More and Through the Olive Trees. And one thing that Kurosami is known for, which doesn't show up in this film, is this sort of meta commentary on storytelling and filmmaking. And so those later films are all kind of like pulling back from this film. And the next movie is Let's uh, you know, a character who is supposed to be the director of Where is the Friend's House, but it's not Kurosami, and goes back to Coker to find the actors who were in that film, but who are played by different actors. And then the third film features the actual actors from this film playing themselves. And so it's a lot of playing with the idea of, you know, what is real, what what is storytelling, and that kind of stuff that Kurosami does in other films, but doesn't really do in this one. Yeah, and in Close Up and Taste of Cherry, you see instances of that meta technique. Uh, Josh, I don't know if I agree with your analogy that this is akin to Kevin Smith's True North trilogy. <laughs> yeah, which he hasn't finished, so... We look forward to that. I feel like we've you've somehow gotten Kevin Smith references into multiple episodes. I don't understand. I don't understand what happened. He's he's really taken up too much space in your brain. <laughs> <laughs> he really is. I'm just uh, I'm fascinated by the cottage industry. Like I I go on like Facebook and like that world of Kevin Smith group, and like there are so many people who are like traveling every weekend to see like. Oh, I saw the Walt Flanagan at a you know at a convention this weekend, and I got a you know a special DVD of uh, you know some horror movie that someone directed that was one of the customers in Lenin's Tomb, the Cat, and blah blah. You know what I mean, Josh? They're so specific, and I love it. And it's amazing to me that he's created a whole industry on it, much like Josh. Now here's a professional segue, Kurostami created a whole industry of making films. <laughs> sure. I think you need to join a, a Kiristami Facebook group maybe to balance out your weird Kevin Smith obsession. I think a Kiristami Facebook group would like start at Facebook and then lead me to other social media sites pretending to be Facebook, and, <laughs> you know, and then you'd be back on Facebook, but you'd be in a different group discussing yeah. that first group. That that actually would totally reflect the the Kurosami style. That would be fascinating. So um, this film, as as is often the case um, when we do these foreign films, uh, especially from further in the past, 
you know, it took a while to expand out from its original release in Iran in 1987, where Kiarostami had been making movies for many years, but had not been as well known really outside of Iran. But it did win the Bronze Leopard, which I assume is essentially like third place at the Locarno Film Festival in 1989. Where's that? And Don't say that Locarno. Yeah, Locarno. Yes, it exactly. It's where it is. Um, and in in the early '90s, it started kind of uh, spreading out to film festivals in North America. It played at the Toronto International Film Festival in 1992. In 1993, it played at film festivals in San Francisco and Washington D.C., Vancouver, and Philadelphia, and then at the Chicago International Film Festival in 1994. So it took a while for it to get out there. And by the time it was released in any kind of commercial capacity in the US, it was part of this kind of wave of other Kiarostami movies that had played at festivals and people were starting to appreciate here, including the rest of the Coker trilogy and Taste of Cherry, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 1997. Yeah. And of course, this is all about geopolitics and, you know, uh, the Iran-Contra scandal. And of course, uh, socioeconomic uh, development and the CIA and coups and uh, you know things, Josh. Lots of things. No, no. Some of the most of not most of, not most of those things. But, no. Uh, All right. Some, geopolitics, maybe. The Mons, like the Amans and Reagan and yeah. I mean, anything related to Iran is certainly tied up in in political issues and um, we can talk yeah. about that we later. saw that in argo yeah <laughs> this movie is <laughs> much like argo <laughs> um but i mean the iranian cinema in general i think you know kiarostami is kind of at the vanguard of that being appreciated outside of iran but other filmmakers as well who were working at the same time and then were working later you know this is one of the movies that kind of helped bring all of that to international attention yeah, and Kiarostami is part of the Iranian new wave of film, uh, which uh, I admit, Josh, not an expert on. Nor am I. I mean, I think I've probably seen a few more Iranian films than you have, but I would not call myself an expert, much like when we talked about the uh, Romanian new wave, yeah. where I was also not an expert on that, but had seen a few films. I am an expert in new wave music from the 80s, though. Yeah. So let's let's have another Kevin Smith-esque uh, with, with Josh, of course, you could put into that group of artists, Flock of Seagulls, who did the song, I Ran So oh, Far Away. Oh, man. Okay. Wow. That was <laughs> props to you on that. Um, so part of the reason I'm saying all that is because looking for reviews of this, there really aren't any English language reviews from around the time it was released. And it was tough to find any reviews at all because I think beyond playing film festivals, it didn't really get an extensive theatrical release in North America. But I found a few and the earliest ones that I was able to find online. And it's interesting to see the evolution of the critical reaction. Um, the earliest I found is from June 1997 uh, from Gemma Files in iWeekly in Toronto. Um, who was actually not really into it. And uh, this is, I think, before Kiarostami has built this international reputation exactly. So she says, Kiarostami has both a respect for the naturalism that evolves from working with a particular place and set of people and an obvious flair for what can only be called a kind of kitchen sink lyricism. As with his earlier work, The White Balloon, Whereas the friend's house revolves around a child's self-imposed quest for something fairly mundane, an elliptical journey that involves being alternately ignored, harassed, and misled by a series of well-meaning but opinionated adults. And while I suppose the endless repetition in Kiarostami's script is supposed to seem charmingly true to life, it basically just ends up making the kid in question seem dumb as a stick. Uh, I didn't feel he was dumb. Maybe a little misguided, right? But, you know, it's, um, it's, the movie was made uh, in the 80s. There was no internet. He couldn't just look up his friend's address, you know? He's in a rural area. What was, what was he to do? I thought he was well-intentioned, at least. 
he was well-intentioned. Yeah, that is true. And I mean, so if you, if you haven't seen the film, the plot is basically this, this kid has accidentally taken his friend's notebook home from school and the teacher has threatened to expel this friend if he doesn't do his homework properly in his notebook. And so our main character decides he must return the notebook before school the next day and goes on this quest basically to find his friend's house because he doesn't actually know where his friend lives. Yeah, that, that's, it. that's it. You got yeah. it, Josh. So, yeah, I mean, I I think last episode you said that Karastami is one of my favorite filmmakers, which isn't really true. He's your but, single favorite yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, but I have liked other Kiristami films that I had seen before this, and uh, his film Certified Copy. That in particular is one of my favorite movies ever. It's just absolutely amazing. And the other films of his I've seen I liked as well. I was not really into this film, and I feel like in part it's because of what she says. There is that this kid. I just wanted to smack him the whole time. Honestly, he has this same sort of like stunned expression on his face for the entire film and i just i don't know i found it repetitive and kind of annoying and uh here we come back to one of the awesome movie year tropes josh hates children actors and uh i think you're not going to be a fan of the iranian new wave because of uh in my research i think there's a lot of films that use children as protagonists because of all the kind of rules, regulations, censorships, and uh, materials you're not allowed to put out uh, while making films in this country at that time. Right. That is true. And I don't necessarily hate all films about or starring children. I mean, we've talked about plenty of child performances in various episodes that I think are good, but yeah, I may be less inclined to love those. And and you're right. Kiristami also made uh, did a lot of documentary work, including with school children. And this film was an outgrowth of some of that other stuff that he had done before then. Of course, you know, the cast is, these are all non-actors, most of whom don't have any other acting credits. And so, you know, he's working with that naturalism, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just, to me, it just felt very repetitive. It was just kind of, he looks for this, he, he gets misled or he goes to the wrong place and he's kind of distressed and just, yeah, again, the, the same look on his face the entire time like uh-oh and that's all you i get. mean the you sounds like you're describing your former pick smiley face to me right now i mean i think that that film was more varied in its encounters but i mean it is essentially one of those kinds of movies i mean i thought of adventures and babysitting that we just talked about where it's character is on a quest you know on a uh, making an effort to achieve a very simple goal and continues to hit all of these obstacles, making it impossible for them to do so. Well, as you know, the Iranian New Wave was heavily influenced by Into the Night, the John Landis film. So there's a lot of these Into the Night films in the Iranian mm. New Wave. Yeah. I mean, in a weird way, it, it follows that same structure. Um, so kind of on the opposite end here, uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum in the Chicago Reader in April 1998 in and this is when, like I said, Kiristami is getting this sort of like big push. And so this is part of a bunch of Kiristami movies being shown here for the first time in theaters in Chicago. And he says, it's entirely possible that Abbas Kiristami, who's been making films in Iran for almost three decades, is our greatest living filmmaker. The problem isn't that his films are esoteric, simply that they're different from Western and other Iranian films alike in the way they're put together without scripts, and in most cases without professional actors, in the way they address us, and in what Kiristami includes and leaves out. Where is the Friend's House is a comic epic in miniature about a schoolboy trying to return a classmate's notebook. It's about making discoveries and cherishing what's in the world, including things that we can't understand. When he says comic, what does he mean by that, Josh? I mean, I can only speculate, but I assume he finds some humor in the obstacles that this child faces. I, I can see maybe feeling that way about it. And then this reviewer, who was this again? It's Jonathan Rosenbaum. Did he, um, did he give any evidence why he stated that he might be the greatest living filmmaker of the time? I mean, I think he, he's mentioning it right there in, in what I, you know, mentioned what I quoted that, you know, he has this this unique approach and that he reaches out towards the sort of ineffable. Um, 
it was a short little blurb about this, uh, you know, retrospective of Kurosami films. So uh, I could uh, I could go read it more carefully again if you want to hold off for a moment. I just think uh, Rosenbaum uh, is uh, wrong in Baum in this one, Josh. Right. He's, uh, I don't think he backed up any of his points. I don't think there's anything funny in this movie. Maybe the old man, he was kind of funny, but like, and I and I like this movie better than you. I just think this um, review is completely off the mark. I mean, and I and I, you know, we've talked about other filmmakers who have like done, you know, taken structure like this, uh, Mike Lee, right? You know, and everything like that. Maybe you could go, well, he's not using professional actors, and that's different than Mike Lee. But we've talked about stuff like that too, and I just don't think um, any of this. Like, I think he makes interesting movies, but I don't think there's like he's breaking ground here in any way. Yeah. I mean, I will say that, um, Rosenbaum's assertion there that Kiristami is the greatest, well, he's no longer living now, but the greatest living filmmaker at that time, or at least one of the greatest, he's not alone in making that assertion. I mean, during Kiristami's life, especially later in his career, as all these movies received this acclaim and, you know, won things like the Palme d'Or at Cannes, he was always up there near the top of these lists of the greatest international filmmakers. So I don't think Rosenbaum is out on a limb. Well, I don't even think that that's the problem with the assertion. Like, I think you could make that assertion. I just don't think he backed it up based on your blurb in any, any okay. way. Well, so. maybe maybe I, I inaccurately blurbed him there. <laughs> I was trying to find the part that talked about this specific movie. So that was, uh, you know. Apologies to Jonathan Rosenbaum. Can I just say really quick, I, I wrote in my notes while I was watching this movie, uh, is this supposed to be a comedy about like 10, 15 minutes in when the kid was like explaining to his mom about the notebook for like the sixth time? And I was like, maybe this is supposed to be some like weird, awkward comedy. So like I did see it as meant to be funny kind of, but I, I don't know. I kind of lost that as it continued. Did you watch Close Up, Dave? I didn't, no. Josh and I have both. Josh had seen it before. I watched close up. I think that kind of kind of like real under the radar, I guess, dry wit, if that's what he's going for, is much more uh, attuned and effective in close up. Mm. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, I haven't seen close up in a long time, so I don't remember specifically. But I think Dave's not wrong that there is that kind of dry wit here a bit. It's in things like that scene where the kid just keeps trying to talk to his mom, and he's so meek and so quiet. Yeah. That yeah. you know that was why to me instead of it being kind of amusing, I was like just speak the fuck up kid you know um, and it frustrated me yeah but that seems a good one to bring up because i don't i didn't take it that way at all i took it as he like you said he is meek he's trying to get his point across and his mom is like no you got to do your homework that's that's what you got to do and that was like you know she was doing whatever task she had to do she wanted him to do his tasks and she was like this is the routine this is what we're doing stop talking to me about it and it made me dislike the mom very much um, until the scenes at the end when she was much nicer. But I didn't get any humor from it. He reminded me of uh, Milton with the stapler in office space. I like, it's just like, <laughs> what a so meek. Yeah. It's so yeah. meek that like nobody pays attention at all, you know? Yeah. I, I do think, I mean, Jason, whether you found it funny or not, I do think there is an element of intentional humor in parts of this film. Well, Josh, as you know, I don't understand humor. So no, no, you don't. I think you need to add some jokes about, uh, Iranian schoolboys to your stand up act. Maybe uh, then you'll get it. I don't know if that's getting in there at any point. Probably not appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> that sounded wrong. <laughs> so finally, uh, really looking here for, for the earliest reviews I could find. This is from January 1999 from Dennis Schwartz, uh, one of the earliest film reviewers on the internet from his Osis World movie reviews. He said, the narrowness of life and the barren landscape are excellent props for the director's vibrant themes, shot without professional actors and done in a low-key realistic style. The dramatic aims are set too low to say this is a great film especially when you compare it to Satyajit Ray's similarly styled Apu trilogy. But this is still great cinema, something American filmmakers would be wise to observe. Kurosami is not afraid to let his camera follow his student around in real time, so we get an ominous feeling of what the journey was like. Kurosami's relentless pursuit is poetically evocative, depicting life in its raw elements, nailing down the fears a child has. But if it was me... 
I would have avoided the trek and given my classmate his notebook in school the next day. Mm. Yeah, I, you would have too, Josh. There's no way. I totally would have. That was another thing. I was like, yeah. you know what? Whatever. Screw him. It's I mean, and spoiler alert, that's it. he ended up doing that. He did the kid's right. homework and gave him the notebook. He could have just saved himself a lot of time by doing it. So. Seriously, we could have not even had this movie at all. Josh, I have two questions. Uh, one, did you find any reviews from Iranian reviewers? I mean, not that I could locate online. I imagine there was something at the time, but um, that was beyond my research capabilities. And I don't know if there would be anything that I could find that would be in English. Hmm. Okay. My other question is, do you or Dave, you can answer this too, have a a favorite movie that uses non-actors in in the narrative form? All non-actors. Hmm. Probably, but I had not considered it so i don't i don't have one that that comes to mind i can just think of bad ones offhand. yeah i think of the soderbergh ones which i didn't love yeah those are interesting though like bubble yeah Um, bubbles all right yeah yeah i i just for some reason kept thinking of uh clint eastwood's the 1517 to paris which is just one of the worst movies about those (laughs) those guys who uh rest you know were heroes on a on a train and uh he decided to have them play themselves and it was disastrous i was thinking about the florida project you know especially a kid driven film you know but that's an example sean baker is a great example of a director who does this yeah that's a much better example and 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 i think actually like you know not necessarily uh you know i could imagine sean baker having some kiristami influence there and that's an actually good movie as opposed to you know what I just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, and I would say even more than that, I, I mean, Tangerine to me would be the one. Yeah, sure. Tangerine is, I mean, the Florida Project has at least, you know, it has Willem Dafoe, obviously. Yeah. And other people who were aiming to be actors, I guess. You know, of course, I mean, Brooklyn Prince at least has gone on to have a whole career. But uh, yeah, Tangerine really feels like he, you know, that those are those people they're, you know, capturing their own lives within this fictional narrative. And uh, recently, never rarely, sometimes always, right? And, uh, that filmmaker, she just basically cast the lead off of the internet, off of like Instagram. And that's kind of oh, interesting that, too. Yeah, that happens. I think I, that's actually how the mother was cast in the Florida Project. Right. So off yep. of like Instagram. Mm-hmm. So that's why we need to get our awesome yeah. movie year. So awesome movie year. <laughs> get into some movies. Get cast in some Sean Baker movies. Uh, so, Jason, you were not familiar with the works of uh, Kiarostami before. I mostly avoided him because I know he's your favorite filmmaker. <laughs> but you you got a bit of a, a crash course here. I watched a, a few uh, Kiarostami films for this for this podcast. Yeah. By the way, didn't City of God also use all non-actors? Oh, yeah, that's a yeah. good example. Yeah. A movie that was discussed on Awesome Movie. Yeah, we should have listened to that episode so we would have known. Wow. That's maybe the best of my picks. Uh, that is a good movie. Yeah. yeah, no, you know, when I um, I know when we were planning this season, um, you were championing uh, us going here because we haven't covered any films from Iran or the Middle East in general, I don't think. Right. Ishtar aside, guys. <laughs> sure. <laughs> this is quite the double feature with Ishtar. So, and obviously he's a major figure and uh, worth worth covering. So, you know, I, I watched all three on the Sight and Sound list this week and I got a, a big deep dive on it. Yeah. Jason mocking the Sight and Sound list, yet using it to guide his film viewing. Oh, I'm going to mock that list all the time, but I will continue watching those films. Yeah. And uh, Dave, you also had not seen any Kiarostami films. No, I I remembered you bringing up Certified Copy on our top 10 of the decade episode over on Piecing It Together. And so I'd always wanted to check that out. And I did watch that in preparation for this. uh, But those were the first two of his that I had seen. Yeah. Yeah. I'd seen a few, obviously, Certified Copy and uh, Like Someone in Love, which are two late Kiarostami films that he made outside of Iran, both of which I think are very good. And I saw Close Up a long time ago. Did watch Taste of Cherry as well just before this, which I liked a lot more than than Where Is the Friend's House, um, another you know big international acclaimed film of his. So I, I will continue to say that while he may not be my favorite filmmaker, he's very talented. I am very interested in his work, and I'll probably watch more in the future. I wouldn't be again watching other Kiristami movies. All right. Well, 
Anything uh, you want to say more about the background of this Kiristami movie? Uh, I saw Flock of Seagulls on an 80s reunion tour a few years ago. They were all right. We'll come back in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on Where is the Friend's House. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we're talking about our foreign film pick, which is Abbas Kiarostami's Where is the Friend's House? And despite my advocacy for Kiarostami and for covering this film, uh, Jason, you liked this more than I did. I know. And uh, part of me is confused. Part of <laughs> me is happy that, uh, you know, you didn't have a good time. And the other part of me uh, just wants a sandwich. But that's always the case. You know, what I got from really this and Taste of Cherry is the use of landscape more than even the use of actors or character. We talk about this a lot, use of environment. But like, um, you know, and, the, and they were in a way very similar, you know, in Taste of Cherry, you have a guy driving through um, a completely different landscape, a very industrial rocky you know kind of desert area and you see like these windy paths and here you see this little boy just kind of running through these zigzag hills and you know rocky paths but different landscapes but i think he does a really good job of uh showcasing place and how much it means to these kind of situations yeah i agree i like that about it too the villages themselves i mean when he goes to the village where the friend lives and he's trying to find the house I mean, the whole village seems like this maze. It's got little like staircases and and nooks. And, you know, it's it's very easy to see how he or anyone would get lost. And Kiristami uses that really well. And there is a, you know, the very striking image of that big hill that's kind of in between the two villages with that zigzag path and a tree at the top that he has to traverse a couple times back and forth as he goes. And I read online, and this is fascinating to me, that you think that this is, you know, somewhere that Kiristami kind of found these two villages or whatever, but the the zigzag path with the tree was something that he created specifically for this film, which I think is pretty cool. Very Elaine May of him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So many connections between this film and Ishtar. Yeah, I like that path. Um, I think, you know, you you felt it was repetitive, which I understand. I liked those kind of little interactions he would find along the way. The old man is this guy who was a craftsman. He built doors for all of the villagers. And it's interesting because he built these like beautiful wooden doors. And now everyone wants to replace them with iron doors, right? You know, because they'll last a lifetime or whatever. And it's interesting, like, you know, we hear this about craftsmen and technology all the time, right? So different time, different skill set uh, that he runs into his grandfather who needs to teach him discipline and respect, but really sends him down the wrong path. I feel like, like the way I'm going to teach him discipline and respect is by forcing him to get me my cigarettes and sending him away from doing his actual task, even though I actually have cigarettes in my pocket right now. Right. The idea that you need to teach him to just do yeah. whatever adults say, no matter how stupid. It right. Is. And he, the grandfather's like, you know, my dad, when I was growing up, every other week, he'd give me a penny. And every other week, he'd give me a beating. Now, some weeks, he'd forget to give me the penny. But he never forgot that beating. <laughs> and this is his his example of how best to raise Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, And yeah, he just finds like little kind of, I don't even call them adventures, but little situations along the way. I think the most striking part of Joshua, you're talking, saying going up and down the hill is when he follows the guy, uh, the businessman who he assumes is the student's, uh, his friend's father. And the, he's riding, is it a horse or a donkey? I don't remember. I think it's like a donkey, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah, maybe. I don't remember. But um, he's riding a donkey and you see this little boy trying to keep up and chase the donkey and follow him. And I thought that was the best. I mean, that builds to that. And it's a good usage of that. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting to me that the the scene, the only time really we spend time with people and the kid isn't around is this this moment when, as you're saying, the grandfather sends him to go get the cigarettes. And instead of following the kid trying to find cigarettes, we stay first with the grandfather as he talks about his father giving him a penny and giving him a beating. And he's trying to tell his own friend about how this is the best way to raise a child. And the friend seems a little skeptical about this. Um, and then we get the whole discussion about 
the doors and the salesman who is trying, giving a really hard sell to people about how they should have iron doors now and replace the older doors. And one guy doesn't really want them. And the, the salesman kind of just bullies them into buying them anyway. And I figured this, this must be important because this is the only time that we're paying attention primarily to these other characters and not to the kid. And then, of course, later on, we get that old man and we return to the theme about the doors. And he's the one who has made these ornate wooden doors that are being replaced. So it seems like there's something there being said about generational changes or, or something like that. But you don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know if I have a grand like theory about it, uh, but I think you can just absorb it. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? Um, nope. Okay. <laughs> I, was well. try- I, was, I was really racking my brain to see if I did. And no, nope. Still no. no. I mean, it was a little, was it not like sort of surprising to you? That in that scene, as you know, we've been following this kid all around as he tries to do things and he's running off and then suddenly we're not following him anymore and we don't see what he does there. I mean, that's a good point. At the at that moment, I honestly didn't even realize it because I was just watching the film, um, you know, but I, I yeah, that's like probably something I should have noticed. Um, uh, but no, it didn't it didn't surprise me. But I mean, I wonder, Josh, because, you you know, in these other films, he does these meta things. And here he doesn't, but I guess that would be breaking the form of what we had already established and then going back to the norm. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not as meta, as you say, as as things that he does in other films. I mean, this is, at least in terms of what I've seen, the most straightforward film of his that I've seen. Um, and And I don't know exactly what the background of of like financing this film was but you do see at the beginning that it's presented by like Iranian child development fund or something like that so you wonder if this was aimed more at actual children in the audience potentially and so that's why it needs to be more easily digestible than these kind of self-reflexive films that he made later I didn't wonder that at all all right Jason not not having any <laughs> self-reflection no. related to this film whatsoever. No, didn't didn't make me reflect. He liked uh, the landscapes. Right. <laughs> I did used to copy Josh's homework in high school, so I could relate to that part of the, the homework aspect of it. Yeah, that's true. They uh as you say at the end. And I did like that at the end that, you know, this this this, this whole ordeal that this kid has gone through. And and he's failed, right? By the end of the movie, he never finds the friend's house. Eventually, he just goes home and has to eat dinner and is very distressed. Yeah, he doesn't even that's, eat dinner. Right, right. His mom is trying to get him to eat dinner and he can't even eat dinner. And he finally just sits there to do his homework. And he has that same stupid look on his <laughs> face like, oh, no. Um, and then we cut to the next day. And the teacher, who's really a dick, this teacher, right? Um and you think here he is, he's going to, you know, yell at the poor friend who has always been losing his notebook and doing his homework on loose paper. And uh, our protagonist just busts out both the notebooks, gives the one to the friend and the teacher's like, good work. Yeah. And that's it. But those kids sit next to each other and the teacher goes around the class checking the homework. So it's interesting. And by interesting, I mean strange that these two kids with identical notebooks right next to each other that he didn't notice that I'm guessing there was the exact same handwriting. Right. I was wondering about that, but I feel like that's maybe a commentary on the fact that the teacher doesn't actually really care. You know, uh, it's looking not, for these commentaries, Josh. I mean, I, I am looking for interesting things in these films for us <laughs> to discuss. And, and, and this uh, is one of those lightning uh, bolts for you, the Iranian educational system. Well, I mean, Kiristami had made documentaries um, about the Iranian educational system. So I think it's something that he is interested in. And I do think that that's part of the point is that we see in the early part of the film that the teacher is really very cruel to these kids. And he never says anything really related to like the quality of the homework. We don't even really learn what the homework is, right? He's just really concerned with like, did you do it in the like, proper procedural way did you put it in the notebook you know what you know i can relate to that i had an asshole teacher josh uh when i went to boston university he was the dean of the college of communications brent baker 
And he was a former Navy man. And this guy was such a dick, right? And he was, he taught Com 101. And his whole thing was, like, you have to be where you're supposed to be and this and that. And of course, it's my freshman year. I wanted to fly home for Thanksgiving, already dealing with depression, missing my family, missing my friends, you know, and everything like that. And he's like, we're going to have a quiz the day before Thanksgiving. And if you miss it, you get a zero on it. And I was acing this class easily, right? And I went in to see him and the associate dean, Dr. Root. And by the way, Dr. Root, she always said her claim to fame was she memorized everybody's name, the incoming freshman before they, you, you came in. So she supposedly knew all 800 freshmen's name. Uh, but I knew she never knew my name. And I called her on it in front of people. And she was not happy that I uh, poked through her little theory. So anyway, I go in to see Dean Baker and Dr. Root. And I say, look, I'm doing really well in this class. I think I've proven that. I show up. I do the work. I'm getting an A. I cannot fly home to see my family unless I go, you know, the day before or a few days before because it's so expensive. I am willing to take this quiz like way early. Like I will take it before anybody else to prove that I can do the material and do that. And he still wouldn't let me. And he gave me a fucking zero on that quiz. And I ended up with a C in that class. And what was the lesson? That people are fucking assholes for no fucking reason at all. Mm hmm. I really think Abbas Kiarostami should have made a film about that. <laughs> you, you asked me for insights and, you know, relations to the film, and I could relate to this instance, Josh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're, you're right. That is something I think that he's conveying here, that the idea that, you know, teachers, administrators, and you can extrapolate it beyond school settings. Bureaucracy, too, of course. yeah. Yeah, bureaucracy or being sticklers for these procedural aspects that are meaningless and lose sight of what is the really important, important thing yeah. here. Right. Which is learning. Presumably these kids are meant to learn something. Quality time with your family on holidays. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and that's another thing, right? He's against that. The kid who's like, oh, I didn't finish the homework because I had to help my dad on his farm. And these are, these are not well-off people by any means. These are poor rural Iranians. They probably need the kid to help on the farm so that they can keep their farm. And the teacher's like, no, 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 no. Homework first, then help your dad on the farm. And, you know, it's like, really? Come on. Do you, do you think that's how that's going to work? This poor little eight-year-old is going to say, sorry, dad, I can't help you on the farm because the teacher said I have to finish my homework. You think his dad's going to accept that? Uh, Josh, here's another interesting fact about Dean Brent Baker, that, that beta <laughs> cuck. Um, no, but you're going to like this because, Josh, he was a PR man for the Navy and he was the man who greenlit the videos for If I Could Turn Back Time and I Found Someone by Cher, star of Josh's pick, Moonstruck. Wow. That is that was a, that what he told you in class? That's what he said, but he's a garbage man. So I don't even know if yeah. he's still alive. I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but assuming he's still alive, screw you, Baker. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad we've really <laughs> dredged up this this very strong <laughs> feeling that you have about I feel something. like I've made a clear point that I I don't see how you could disagree with it. I don't think anyone's gonna be like, oh, your calm 101 quiz is more important than being with your family on Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you. Dave, do you have any thoughts on where is the friend's house? <laughs> I actually here. think, I think Jason's actually like spot on, honestly. Like to me, it was more about like, you know, adults in general, but especially the teachers just kind of being dicks to kids, you know? And that was like the main thing here. The only other thing that you guys didn't talk about that like kind of stood out to me Every line of dialogue is repeated like at least twice. Did you guys notice that? I, like, I did. People and, repeating themselves. And, you know, is that just because it's not professional actors and there's no script and it's like, hey, do you want to go to the park? Yeah, we should go to the park, that type of thing. Or, yeah. you know, that's what I'm guessing because of the form. But, um, and I wanted to relate this back to that point that you were saying about the adults, because Josh, you were talking about that scene in the beginning where he's trying to get his mom to like listen to him. And you're blaming it on the kid for being so meek. And I'm like, man, if the mom would just let him talk, like he's a little kid. She knows he's meek. Like, you know, so I, I sympathize with the kid or empathize with him while you, of course, went with the big bad mom because you got mommy issues. No, I, I'm not saying that the mom is right there. She's definitely uh, not. You're right. If she would just listen to what he actually is trying to say, 
then she would understand. And she's deliberately not paying attention to him. And I, I think Dave's right that a lot of this is about adults who are very dismissive of kids, don't view this kid as like a human being. Right. In you do ways. what we tell you and that's it. Right, exactly. And and then the other thing is that even the characters like the old man, who is the one character who really pays attention to him and is trying to help him, but completely screws it up. It says like, oh, hey, I know where your friend lives. Let me take you. And they walk very slowly because the old man can't walk very quickly all the way over to this other house, which is where the kid has already been and already learned that the friend doesn't. Yeah, live. Josh, you said that the only point in the movie where we leave the kid is uh, with the grandfather, but we also leave him when the old man goes home and we see the inside of his house. And what is your deep insight on that? Right, well, I mean, I think it's the same. You're right. I missed that one. And I think it's the same idea is that like anytime we leave the kid because the kid is so central, it's Kiristami wanting you to pay attention to what's going on here. And I think, you know, it's showing that the simple and kind of lonely life that this old man lives, you get the impression that probably no one really talks to this guy. And so even showing this random kid where somebody's house is, is probably like the highlight of his uh, day or whatever. And he himself, I mean, he briefly kind of says that he doesn't have kids, I believe. So, you know, we don't know why that is, but he maybe is longing for human connection. Aren't we all? Maybe. Yeah, of course we are. <laughs> of course we are. So uh, should we rate this out of five uh, misplaced notebooks? Sure. I gave it three misplaced notebooks. I, You know, it's a breezy 83 minutes. There was enough to hold my attention. Um, as, unlike you, I don't hate children. So it's, you know, check it out. Three misplaced notebooks. I give it two and a half. And I mean, I appreciate and admire what Kiristami is doing. To me, this was my least favorite of the, uh, I think, like five of his films that I've now seen. And it is, maybe it's partially at least on me because I, I have very low tolerance for children. I just found it kind of repetitive. But I think it is repetitive. You're right. Yeah. It's worth seeing, though. Um, it's certainly very notable film in Iranian cinema and world cinema. So I'm not saying don't watch it, but for me, I would say watch other Kiarostami films first. So Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going three. It was enjoyable, slow, but enjoyable. Yeah. All right. Certainly not worth a list of the 200 greatest films of all time. You cocks. Mm. Jason's Sight ongoing and sound. quest to take down sight and uh, sound continues. Yeah. We'll come back and talk about the legacy of Where is the Friend's House. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about our foreign film pick, Abbas Kiristami's Where is the Friend's House? And the main legacy, as I've been kind of saying, is that this is a big international breakthrough for Kiarostami. And subsequent to this, his films just received more and more attention and awards and whatever to the point where he was named by many people the best or one of the best living filmmakers in the later part of his career. Uh, he died in 2016, but was very prolific really up to that point. Yeah. So why is he your favorite filmmaker? <laughs> He's not, but I don't, but I, I do think he is brilliant despite my lack of enthusiasm for this film. Like I said, I, I watched uh, Taste of Cherry, which I had not seen before. And I, I like that a lot more than this. Uh, I do love Certified Copy. I've seen that a couple times. One of the few films that he made outside of Iran starring Juliette Binoche, um, which has a lot of these meta elements that I think are just integrated brilliantly with its central kind of romantic story. So I'm, I'm very curious to see more of his films. And like I said, he was quite prolific. Um, you, you liked close up Jason, uh, I think maybe more. I think close up's my favorite because I thought it's based on a story and the guy who is the lead, um, that's a crazy story, right? That's a guy who pretends to be a filmmaker and, um, a well-known filmmaker and he gets, uh, you know, ingratiated with this family and he says he's going to make a movie about them and everything. And it's, um, you know, they're planning to make the, the film and he's always going to their house and everything. And then like the dad's like, I don't think this guy's really who he says he is. And then he goes to jail and like the whole 
if I'm not mistaken, the whole movie is a recreation of that situation using those people, right? Which is right. interesting. Um, I like that. Uh, I was going to ask you about Taste of Cherry. Uh, spoiler, guys. Uh, which has no meta elements until the very end where you're waiting for this climactic moment. And then he cuts away and just says, shows like the crew. He's like, that's a wrap, guys. And it's three minutes of the crew packing up where you're like, hey, what's the resolution? What, what did you feel about that? Yeah, I wasn't sure about the meta aspect of that film, but I mean, I did like the idea, and this is a movie that's very much built on the idea of the main character who is contemplating suicide, and he spends the entire film trying to find someone to kind of help him with his plan, and over the course of the film, you think, oh, he's going to understand the humanity of these people that he's talking to and realize that life is worth living, but there is this central question of, is he going to go through with it or not? And I do think ending the movie like that with not really knowing how that went is makes sense, but doing it by having that meta aspect at the end and showing the crew, I wasn't quite sure how that. Went. And it's interesting because Josh, I feel like there are a lot of parallels here. This one, this kid's running all over the place, saying the same thing over and over. Do you know where my friends live? Do you know where his house is? I have to get the notebook back. And in the other one, the taxi driver or the driver's just driving all over the place, windy roads picking up people like, hey, I need your help for a job. Will you help me for a job? Having similar conversations. Like, you know, it's, I feel like the same form in a lot of ways. It is, it is. And I think maybe because that's an adult character with a problem that to me seemed more complex and discussions that seemed to have more depth to them, that movie engaged me more. But yes, yeah, structurally, they are very similar. My favorite Flock of Seagulls song is Space Age Love Song. But what is your favorite Iranian film? Oh, I'm glad you asked because I have an answer for that. It's uh, Children of Heaven. Have you ever seen this movie? I have not. Uh, it's a great movie. It's from 1997 and it is by Majid Majidi. Do you know him, Josh? I don't. And it's about the, it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. And it's basically another small movie uh, where a brother and sister lose a pair of shoes and they have to find the pair of shoes, but it's, it's awesome. No, I'll have to check that mm -hmm. out. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen obviously some Kiarostami films and a few others. I, I would pick uh Jafar Panahi's offside. I really like uh, Panahi of course is in the news a lot lately because you know, all of these Iranian filmmakers now uh, keep getting cracked down by the government and any films that they make, that are in any way critical of societal problems, get them in trouble. And he's been technically disallowed from making films for years, but he still manages to sneak these films yeah. in or whatever. But this is before all that. So it's a more conventionally made film, but it's about a group of female soccer fans who are trying to disguise themselves as men so that they can sneak into a stadium and see a soccer match where women are not allowed. And I mean, it has that social commentary, but it's really just like a... a uplifting film about people who are excited to see a sporting event and their friendship and whatever. So it's a really nice movie. That sounds good. I'd like to watch that. Um, Josh, uh, you know, we focus on the, the, the art, not uh, always the artist, but I think you got to mention there were uh, um, allegations against Kiristami uh, posthumously um, hmm. by one of his uh, actors. Did you know that, Josh? I didn't know that. And that's uh, sad to hear. But um He's not around to respond to those anymore. So we won't really know whatever happened there. Yeah. But I think his body of work is, you know, again, is, is something pretty impressive that that is worth delving into. Uh, again, there's these two sort of pseudo sequels to this in the Coker trilogy, uh, which I have not seen, but would be curious to check out. And some of the actors from this film uh, appear as themselves. The main two kids and the teacher all appear as themselves in the third film through the olive trees. But in that second film, Life and Nothing More, the meta aspect, I believe, is that they are played by other people in, in that film. So it's kind of- Yeah, they should go all the way and have like adults play the kids and kids play the adults in that movie. Yeah, that is something I don't think that he ever did. But you know, otherwise, these, these people in the film, generally, as we said, they're non-actors. They didn't really go on to have further careers other than in, in, you know, in kind of in reference to this film. And uh, it did get a restoration in 2019, which is, I assume, the version that we all watched on the Criterion channel. Looked good. All right. 
So anything else you want to say about the legacy of this film, Jason? No, I've said all it. Right. I've said it all, Josh. Dave, any, uh, any last thoughts you want to share? No, not really. <laughs> okay, good deal. <laughs> well, that is Where is the Friend's House? And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Bring us your notebooks online and on social media. Or tell us your favorite uh, Flock of Seagulls song. And if it's not Space Age Love Song, you're probably wrong. Uh, I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on X Twitter, XX Twitter. Um, we have also have a website, Eat This Comedy. By the time this show comes out, we might have uh, new shows for Eat This Comedy. How about that? Hooray. Right. And, of course, you can find me at Go for Jason, but for some reason, you all refuse to do that on Letterboxd. Come on, y'all. I want to see what you're watching, too. We're at AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on X Twitter, XX Twitter, and uh, that's where we're at, Josh. Yeah. Uh, you can find some uh, old things from me, possibly something about a Kiristami movie. I don't he know. He is your favorite. At joshbellhateseverything.com. <laughs> so enticing. Uh, also at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, at SignalBleed on Twitter X, and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd, where I have more followers than you, Jason, but not that much. So uh, rub it in, Josh. <laughs> I'm saying I, too, want, uh, you know, some more uh some more followers on Letterboxd. I, you know, post post more uh valuable things there, I feel like, than on the other garbage social media sites, probably. Uh, and of course you could listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, I think the next one is gonna be a film that uh, more people are familiar with than perhaps this one here josh yes don't quote me on that i believe you're correct <laughs> it's my pick josh and it is called the princess bride we finally come home to awesome movie years number one director rob reiner oh yeah so tune in next time for the princess bride and thanks for listening to awesome movie year thank you for listening to awesome movie year Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.